Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. It is the last week in the month of February in the great year of 2024. It's hard to believe we have already gone through two months of 2024, but we have. And with it being a Tuesday, that means it is a hashtag Terry Tuesday here on the Compliance Guy. And as always, I get to welcome my very good friend, Terry Fletcher, to the program. We have a really interesting topic or couple of topics that we're going to address today. And um, I'm looking forward to it. So hello, my friend. Good morning. And actually, you know, happy belated President's Day. That's why we were off last week to out of respect for President's Day and for everyone who was off. So we're happy to be back. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to take um, four extra days to um, head out of town with my wife and kind of recharge the batteries and i know some are probably thinking yeah but didn't you take off in the month of december for like a couple of weeks yes i did yes you did <laughs> and then i came back in january and i felt like i worked for an entire year i mean january was the longest year of my life yeah well i know i texted you last week and you're like okay that sounds great i'm snowball snowmobiling right now i'm like okay have fun. <laughs> yeah we did a 12 hour snowmobile ride uh, through the Grand Tetons to Old Faithful in Yellowstone in zero degree weather. So, oh, man, no, no. <clears throat> it was wonderful. <laughs> fun. All right. So today, Terry and I are talking about providers who render services and opt to bill for a CPT code that is a higher remuneration than what they actually provided or for providers who render a service who are not wanting to bill for service for one reason or another. So I'm going to pause and Terry, I'll let you kind of take it away and then I'll jump in where you see fit. Yeah. So it, it's just an interesting phenomenon actually is what I kind of think it is. And, you know, I was trying to explain to Sean what I really wanted to talk today. And it's, it's actually weird for us because, um, you know, we have, providers and on the first part that basically are saying, well, I don't want to charge this because, you know, it'll go to the patient's deductible or, you know, I, I just want to offer this. It's fine. It only takes me a couple minutes, but there's a reason why Medicare and the private payers have opened up reimbursement, even for things that take, you know, a minute or two or three or whatever, because they feel it's value. And remember, there's a problem if you write off something that has value because now you could be inferring that that's how you're keeping the patient. And we don't want you to get in trouble first for a bribe. And that's what it could be considered. But secondly, you are required under the statute, especially if you're billing for Medicare and Medicaid, Medicaid's really terrible about this, or I should say very strict about this, where you have to bill for the services provided. 
And so you, you can't pretend or say, no, it didn't happen or just say, oh, I'm just going to bill an E&M visit instead of billing, you know, your osteopathic manipulation therapy or billing for a skin lesion with an E&M um, or any kind of minor procedure, as long as obviously the E&M was unrelated. And then I do get some practices that say, well, I did do, you know, a lipoma removal, but that's only worth, you know, 60 bucks. And so I, instead of that, I'm just going to bill the E&M, which is worth 150 people. <laughs> don't do that. Or I see, you know, a provider saying, well, I don't like what they pay for an arthroscopic, you know, rotator cuff, but the open rotator cuff pays better or a laparoscopic, you know, gallbladder, but an open gallbladder pays better. First of all, you're, you're dealing also not just with, and I know Sean knows the false claim act because you're reporting something that's incorrect, but you're also not following the rules on reporting. But we were talking offline a little bit about this let's say that you decide not to bill for something. Well, what happens if that patient's, um, you know, problem escalates and they need something more extensive than maybe the therapy you were providing and didn't want to charge for, but there's no record of it. That's a problem. That was what the biggest problem was with waving out of pocket or not billing for certain services because there's no record of it. And now you're trying to get approval for more extensive services and that's where there's an issue. I had a recent physician in the last year or so that decided that one of his buddies at the ER, he wasn't, it was a physician, he wasn't going to bill for his um, E&M services and the, and, you know, and he was seeing him because he suspected he had possible colon cancer. So he didn't bill for any of it. And then all of a sudden, guess what? He had colon cancer, but he couldn't get his surgery scheduled because there was no record or no billing of ENM, there was no, you know, diagnostic colonoscopy. There was, there was just no services to show that. How did you come to this diagnosis? How did you get there? And and how do you know you claims actually? You know, there's a hierarchy. You you start one place and you, you then you go fact finding if a patient comes in with a problem, and to not bill for something or to try and bill for something that you didn't do just for reimbursement purposes, you are opening up a can of worms that. You just don't want to go there. But Sean, I have a question for you just, and I know you you have stuff to say on this. Let's say you're sitting in and you're trying to defend a physician and you've got a judge there plus their attorney and plus um, the payer's attorney. And we know that this service was done, but there's no billing record of it. And it's just in the documentation and the doctor's excuses. Well, I didn't want the patient to have an out of pocket, so I didn't report it. What is the what do you, what can you do there? I know. I mean, you, I'm sure you've dealt with that at some point. Well, it's a contractual, it's a contractual right. issue, right? I mean, you know, by, by participation agreement, by contractual binding agreements, you are obligated to comply with the requirements of that participation agreement. And if you say, well, I'm going to render this service, but I'm not going to bill for it because the patient doesn't want the insurance company to know that they have this problem. It's an ethical issue and it could potentially be a legal issue. One of the things that I would suggest is, is engaging with a malpractice attorney, engaging with a, an attorney who specializes in false claims or in healthcare fraud statutes. And pose what you are wanting to do to them and get legal guidance from a regulatory compliance perspective 
every service that you render to a patient, as long as it is not an excluded service, should be billed to the insurance companies. Yeah. Again, they want you to bill because they track these services for statistical and utilization purposes. Think about this, Terry. We always talk about the new and emerging technology codes, right? <clears throat> what are those? The ones that start with a T, right? Right. Okay. Those, those CPT codes don't have any RVUs for the most part, and they most likely don't have any payer policies. They are MAC specific or payer specific as to whether or not they're going to reimburse for those. However, the only way that you could take a code from a temporary code like a G code or a new and emerging technology code into a permanent five character, you know, five digit CPT code with policies with RVUs is by billing for these services at a consistent rate so that Medicare says, hey, we probably need to take this from a temporary code to a permanent code or from a new and emerging code to a temporary code to a final code. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it even says in CPT in the Roman numeral section, it says, do not approximate a code. Code what you did. If you can't find a code, bill unlisted. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, I know a lot of people go, yeah, but I'm never going to get reimbursed for an unlisted code. That's that's just not true. Yeah, right? it's not true. I mean, that's why you have box 19 on the CMS 1500 form, which is to provide a description of that unlisted service so right. that they can understand what service you actually rendered and why you were seeking remuneration for that service. Well, it might take a little work because it, it is unlisted and there's there's rules that you have to, you know, send a report, you know, give give them information. Like Sean said, there is a box 19, the, the you know, fill in box to, to give in more information electronically. But that's our job. It's it's to it's to, you know, that not everything is black and white. If it was just send a claim, get paid, then doctors wouldn't need their support staff. But the, the, the other thing that's that. Fair that point. Yeah, that that concerns me is, you know, I know we were talking offline. I have a provider that does the OMT therapy and doesn't want to have that applied to the patient's um, deductible. And then there's some payers that don't um, recognize those codes. And so they said, so we have to write it off. And, you know, that does happen. And if it's non-covered, you can't write it off. Actually, the patient needs to know that if it's a non-covered service, they may be responsible. But the the thing is, is that you need to not only know your contracts, but when I hear that I don't want it applied to the patient's deductible, what about the patient? The patient might want to get that deductible eaten up. I've had patients get really mad at providers' offices because they didn't submit it to get their deductible eaten up because they need to go have a, a larger procedure that's going to take, you know, um, a lot more of their deductible or out of pocket. And if that's met then their out of pocket, you know, is less. And with, especially with the exchanges right now, you know, deductibles are awful. I mean, I just recently had to change insurances because I was on my husband's Cobra and now I'm on a really terrible HMO health net and my deductible is $8,000. It's oh ridiculous. God. Yeah. So do I want my deductible eaten up every time I go in? Yeah. Because you know, well, you, I, do, you do want it there. I guess I'm struggling, right? Because, and I'm with you a hundred percent for me, 
I hear a physician say, I don't want to bill that to the insurance because it's going to go towards their deductible. And in my mind, what I hear is, I don't want to bill that because I'm going to have to chase the patient for yeah, the money. For the, for the, and I don't yeah, want to chase the patient. Well, if you don't want to chase the patient for the money, then why aren't you collecting at the time of service? Right. I mean, right. come on. Well, the other thing is I'm seeing, for, so that OMT physician, he's like, well, what I'll do is I'll just put that under the the risk and just um, increase my E&M so I can get it just paid that way. That way it doesn't go towards deductible because the patient has only co-pays on E&M. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Stop what you're doing right there. I'm like, yeah. first of all, you're manipulating the situation and the services you're going to up code instead of charge this, you know, the split bill of what you do or, and, you know, and, and the one that the doc, the Durham doc that said, you know, I'm going to charge an ENM instead of a, um, you know, a lesion removal or a skin procedure because, you know, the ENM pays better. Well, how do you, how do you justify that? An ENM has the problem, has possible data. It has assessment and plan and risk. You're doing a procedure. That's the, the documentation isn't going to support it. So, so let me, let me stop there for a minute. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what you just defined, right. By talking about a dermatologist who says, I'm going to bill for the evaluation and management service at a level four or level five, because it's a higher remuneration oh than what gosh. I get for a lesion destruction. So 18 of the United States code, 18 USC. Section 1347 is conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. Yep. The difference between healthcare fraud and violation of the civil statute, which is the False Claims Act, um, is one is knowledge, the other one is intent. If you are intending to defraud the federal payer program for healthcare services, that is a, a perfect example, in my humble opinion, as a regulatory professional. You are seeking out, you are setting out, not seeking out, but you are setting out to seek a higher remuneration for a service that you really didn't bill or, or didn't provide. Because what you provided as a procedure reimbursed inherently less. That is an intent to defraud. That is, an, that is an abuse of the system. That is waste against the system. And that is fraud, in my humble opinion, as a non-lawyer. No, I agree. I agree. And the fact that you, and you know, the, for the listeners, remember, Sean is somebody that you want to play federal trivial pursuit with because he knows every <laughs> chapter verse. You can't beat him. You can't. Him and I go back and forth on, should we do this? Should we do that? And my position's always, well, Sean, best practice. And he always very politely says, okay, but Terry, look at the rules. And I look at the rules and I say, we're 99% together, 95. Let's bring it down a little bit. And 5%, I'm like, yes, but here's what we have to do. And he's like, yes, but... And then I get the, I get the look and then it's like, <laughs> let me quote it. But, you know, I appreciate it because I give you, give me a lot of insight. We may not always agree as far as the interpretation, but because of all the legal work you do and the fact that OIG trusts you, CMS trusts you, CMS trusts me since I audit for them, you know, you have to look at it in the fact that if you can cite why you're saying what you're saying. And then you're a provider that's going out there saying, yeah, but it's all about the money. 
look at what we're dealing with right now out there, not just in politics, not just in life, not just with AI, but everything. And we always say, when you want to find a problem, when you want to find fraud, when you want to find inappropriate anything, follow the money. And if all of a sudden, you know, you're a, a specialty practice, we'll pick on Durham because they're always in the hot seat with the OIG. Let's just say you decide you're billing all these EM and all of a sudden they don't see any <laughs> procedures for skin. They're going to be like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I and, and see, you just raised a great point. And, you know, I, I, I think back to my grandmother who raised me and you're you're talking about common sense, right, Terry? And and a lot of things that we talk about are common I'm sense. Sorry, I'm laughing because you can't teach it. <laughs> well, so I, you know, I, I, my grandmother used to say to me, "Sweetheart, if everybody was born with common sense, we'd never have wars." Um, the fact of the matter is this, you know, you 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 have to stop. <clears throat> and you have to think about if I turn right at Albuquerque, what is my potential liability versus if I turn left at Albuquerque, am I on a straight and narrow path? You know, my wife always talks about the fact that I am so black and white and I am so straight laced. Like I, like I don't even like when I have clients tell me, you know, I'm okay with skating, you know, right on the line. I'm like, listen, I'm not good with skating on the line at all because you hit a little divot or you hit a little pebble on that line. And now what's to stop you from falling over that line? Well, you know, think about what you did this past week. You were snowmobiling and what happens yeah. if you hit a branch or a tree yeah. or something that you didn't expect or something that you did anticipate, but you were not careful and this is what this is kind of the same thing you'd go flying my, my wife your... actually laughed okay <laughs> so as we were snowmobiling <clears throat> it was myself another good friend of ours um the guy that we were with and me and there were a couple of others that joined as well so there were like a total of eight of us in our our little group that did this ride and like there were a few times where i saw my wife turning around and looking for me. And when we, we get to a stop, she'd be like, Hey, old man, you know, that throttle, you can push it a little bit further down. And I literally looked at her and I said, did you see the posted sign out there that said snowmobiles 45 miles per hour? <laughs> and she looked at me and she, I'm not making this up. She looked at me and she goes, you've got to be kidding me. We're in the middle of Yellowstone National Park. There's nobody out here. And she literally said to me, I can't make this up. She said, What do you think? There's a snowmobile enforcement. And I oh said, Oh my gosh, it's like as a matter of fact. Putting, yeah, as a matter of fact, there, there is. is. Yeah. And she goes, like, yeah. yeah. And she and and the and the and our guide, Eric, literally was hysterical laughing. And I looked at him and I said, would you like to take this one or should I? He goes, oh, no, I <laughs> oh, am no. enjoying this crap show between the two of you. He goes, please enlighten all of us. And I said, there actually is a park enforcement officer. And I said, they are federal agents. These are not your state troopers. These are not your county sheriffs. These are 
federal agents who have the right to detain you, to arrest you, and to fine you. My wife looked at me and she goes, the odds of us seeing a park enforcement <laughs> officer, Sean, in the middle of Yellowstone is slim to none. And I just looked at her and I said, dear woman, I love you. Do you know if my, I'm going to, I'm going to get her on the phone later today. And I want you to hear this conversation. Not even 10 minutes after we started riding again, we get passed by a snowmobile that has blue lights on it. It says federal park enforcement officer. I I swear, I almost wet my snow. I was going to say, it was like you almost peed your pants. And the, the I told you so. But you know what's funny with that scenario <laughs> is the fact that that is the conversations that we have with providers all the time yes. where they're, it's kind of like saying, as long as I don't get caught or I've never get caught or I'm not going to get an audit. I mean, look what I just sent to your phone. My It happened to my brother. He was snowmobiling too. I mean, it's... It, it's the same. It's a very, very good analogy where, oh, nobody's going to see that. Yes, they are. People, yes, they, are. they are. And, and I it's, say it, it all the time, Terry. Yeah. And it's it's not just let's just take out the the false claim. Let, I mean, let's right. go back to the fact that if you're not billing for something you did and it can't be found in the record, it hurts the patient because if their condition, their syndromes, their, you know, um, their their complaint they have gets escalated. There has to be a paper trail that it, they were evaluated, that they were treated, that you started somewhere. And to just say, I'm not going to do this because I don't want, you know, the patient to get charges wrong. You to say that, you know, you're, you're going to charge something different than you did is teetering on a false claim. It's probably actually a false claim, but it's just, um, it opens you up to such a, a, not just a legal issue, a malpractice issue, but a non-compliance issue. We are the compliance guy here. And it, it just starts, you know, a cascading situation, a domino effect that you just don't want to do. And when things like this, if patients think you'll do this for them, they will refer patients who think that now you're going to do, you know, some something shady and it's shady. There's no way out of it. The, the bottom line here is if you are providing certain services, you have to report them in bill form. And why are you providing them if you're not going to bill form? If you don't think that they're worth it, then why are you doing them anyway? You know, just saying, well, I only spent three minutes with this smoking cessation, but you followed all the rules. Or it only took me a couple of minutes to do the OMT, but you followed all the rules. You need to report it. You know, if you took off a lesion, what if that lesion happened to be suspect? And the patient eventually gets skin cancer or they're susceptible to that, but you only build it as an ENM. And then somebody looks at your ENM, sees it in there and says, wait a minute, this doesn't have elements of an evaluation and management. This was a procedure and you can't find it unless somebody comes in and tries to find it. This is a problem. And so just we're, we're trying to make a point here that you, you don't want to invite risk. You know, you want to do it the first time you want to be on offense, just have clean claims. And this is also another aspect of invited risk. And I know I mentioned, you know, scope procedures, laparoscopic procedures. Yes, open because you're cutting into a patient pays better. But if you're doing them through a device, through laparoscopic, through arthroscopic, you know, those pay a little less because they feel that it's, you know, a little less uh, invasive and a little easier for the physician. You have to report what you did. That's and right. That's kind of my soapbox on that. Absolutely. Well, 
we are in lockstep on this topic. I know we have some other topics that we talked about yesterday where we had some spirited debate. Um, for those who missed yesterday's roundtable discussion, you can find it on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple, Pod Paradise, and wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode of The Compliance Guy, our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. As always, I want to thank my very good friend, Terry Fletcher, for taking time out of her very busy schedule to hang out with me. And I want to thank each and every single one of you for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while as we get to explore our favorite topics of compliance. All right, we will be back later this week with another great interview, and I hope you'll join us on Thursday as we explore the world of compliance and health law. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.